want to invite you to pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to unpack your word a little bit. And I pray that as we do that, you would find us to be amenable to hear it and uh, responsible to obey it um, as you have uh, instructed us and led us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to mention at the beginning of the service, but I forgot to, that we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. So if there's a moment when you can slip out and get some juice and some bread to prepare for that, that'd be great. You might as well go during the sermon. We know you're going to do it anyway, so just knock yourself out. I started wearing glasses when I was in the fourth grade. My uh, teachers uh, noticed I was having trouble seeing the board. My parents noticed I was having trouble because my grades were beginning to slide. And so the teacher recommended to my parents that I go see the eye doctor. And of course they took me and prescribed glasses. There were those really, really fashionable, giant black rimmed glasses with this huge, thick uh, things to hold on your ears. They were very, very attractive. But the thing about it is that with the right glasses, with the right prescription, I could see. I could navigate my way through the world and I could navigate my way through the blackboard in the fourth grade. When I was able to do so, uh, when I was in the military later on myself, I got contact lenses because I thought wearing contact lenses would make me more handsome than wearing glasses. But as my youngest granddaughter Harper is fond of reminding me, she says, Gramps is more funny than handsome. So, I've gone back to the glasses because I can see better with them anyway, right? The right prescription you can see. Without the right prescription, you can't see. If you don't have your glasses on at all, you can't see a thing. I was heading west from Overland Park, Kansas to Topeka one uh, sunny winter's day, low winter sun heading into the west. And it was before I got, uh, see, my my daughter-in-law calls them grandpa sunglasses because of the giant things that you slip over your glasses to have sunglasses. But I didn't have those. At the time, what I had was a pair of regular prescription glasses and then a pair of prescription sunglasses, which I had with me in the car. So I'm heading west on Interstate 70. I'm going about 75 miles an hour. It's a straight stretch of the road, and I really, really, really need to put my sunglasses on. So did I pull over and carefully switch my glasses out on the side of the road? No, I didn't. I tried to take my glasses off and replace them with my sunglasses while heading down the road at 75 miles an hour. I figured it's a straight road. What can go wrong? Well, even on a straight stretch of road, without the right prescription on your eyes at the right time, you'd be amazed at what can go wrong. So, to keep on course, we have to have the right prescription. We have to be able to see through the right set of lenses. And so we're going to unpack that idea this morning. And we're going to do that by using five words that are going to kind of anchor our conversation today. And I trust will help anchor us in the year 2021. And as we move through 2021 to see what it unfolds for us. So here's the first word. The first word is worldview. Worldview means how we organize reality and where we get our answers to the big questions. Questions like, what is an ultimate reality? What's really out there? What's the human condition? What's the remedy for the human condition? What in the world are we here for? Now, we all have a worldview. Sometimes we come to it as a result of purposeful reflection. But oftentimes we come to it accidentally. 
We have this kind of smorgasbord worldview where we pick and choose from our various sets of preferences. We pick and choose from our political preferences. We pick and choose from our opinions. We pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. We even do this sometimes with biblical revelation. Oh, we like this bit, but we don't like that bit. So we're going to like this bit and do this bit, but we're going to leave this bit out over here. For worldview, though, for believers in Jesus, worldview should be a purposeful endeavor. Worldview should be a product of careful reflection on what the scriptures have to say. So the next four words are going to help us do that because the next four words unfold for us in a big picture kind of way, the Christian worldview. They give us kind of a a grand narrative, if you will, an overarching way to connect those things that we hear to be true from the scriptures. So what's our second word? Our second word in our worldview um, endeavor this morning is the word creation. The second word is creation. You heard Pastor Laura read from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I don't want to get in the weeds of the creation evolution debate this morning. Most of you have been inculcated with the Darwinian point of view of the world and uh, whether you came to that purposefully or accidentally. I just want to mention a couple of things about that before we venture on. The first thing I want to mention to you is a book by a guy named Michael Behe, he wrote the book Darwin's Black Box. And in this book, he talks about the idea of irreducible complexity. And what that means is there are certain body structures that, unless they are fully formed, don't do a thing. He gives the example of an eyeball. Bits and pieces of an eyeball, construction project, Lego sets of an eyeball, they don't work. You have to have the whole thing put together in order for the eyes to function properly. So I think about that idea of irreducible complexity when you think about Darwin's idea of macroevolution. Also think about this idea, design. Like when you see something that you know has been well put together, a a composition, a piece of music, or a building, a structure, or a watch, or really anything that has complicated and has been put together, behind that thing, you know there was a design for that thing. And here's the Christian contention, that there is a design to the universe, and that you and I, we can know the designer. Back in 1936, Back before I was around, but uh, some of you may have been around, a sixth grade class decided to write a letter to Albert Einstein. Little girl in the class named Phyllis Wright, she was um, commissioned to write the letter to Albert Einstein because here was the class's question, the sixth grade class's question. The question was, do scientists pray? Albert Einstein's answer, part of his answer, Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. The scientist's religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that, compared with it, All the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant 
reflection. Albert Einstein. Now, as far as we know, Albert Einstein never came to personal faith in Jesus, but one of the most brilliant minds of human history stood back and said, there's got to be something out there behind all this. And I think he was right. And that's what our first word testifies to. Because you and I, around this subject, we get bogged down in some questions that are interesting questions, but don't necessarily help us very much. And they've been classified in several different categories by people who look at these ideas and study them, you know, kind of philosophically. There's the Greek question. The Greek question is, what is it? It's the question of definition. There's the Roman question. The Roman question is the question of the engineers. How does it work? And then there's the Hebrew question. The Hebrew question has to do with Purpose. The Hebrew question is, what is it for? So while you and I are arm wrestling over Greek and Roman questions, oh, how does all that work? The Hebrew question, which is the question the Bible primarily wants to answer for us, is, what's it for? What's it for? Pastor Laura is a fan of the painter Monet. I say, Monet, what the hey? Give me Bill Waterson's Calvin and Hobbes any day. But nonetheless, I'll grant that Monet, among those who appreciate that kind of thing, was a fairly competent artist. We have a couple of um, Monets in our home. No, they're not real Monets, so don't break into our house and steal them to try to sell them anywhere. They are, of course, replicates, uh, replications of Monet's work. They're copies. They're not originals. And you know, original uh, masterpieces are usually signed by the, by the artist, right? Ours, of course, are not signed. But here's the implication of this notion of this word creation. Answering the Hebrew question, what's it for? Here's what it's for. You and I, we are all God's creative masterpiece. We have been signed with the very image of God. You have never encountered anyone who isn't priceless in the eyes of God. That sonogram picture of that little unborn baby, that homeless person on the corner, your crazy aunt or uncle, or maybe you're the crazy aunt or uncle or parent or grandparent, I don't know. The thief, the liar, the beauty queen, the politician, the accomplished artist have all been signed by the creator of the universe, stamped with his image. They are all worthy of care and concern and respect and care and concern and respect. Colonel Bernardine, who used to be the Cardinal of Chicago before he passed away, he, he described it this way. He says, all of life deserves our protection. Here's the quote. He, he called life a seamless garment of life from conception to natural death. I think he's right. If everybody has been stamped with the image of God, then they're all worthy of our care and concern and protection. And also, I think, as we look around at the creation around us, I was out walking in the fall and I encountered this gorgeous display of God's artistic handiwork. It was this reddish, orange-leafed-out tree. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Creation 
is deserving of our care as well. So the first word, creation. Excuse me, the second word is creation. The first word was worldview. Here's the third word, though. Because something happened to the created order, which brings us to this third word. The third word is fall. F-A-L-L. Pastor Laura read us the story from the book of Genesis chapter 3 with the incident at the tree. Incident at the tree where Adam and Eve ventured in to the very place God had told them not to go. And they, yes, three-letter word, they committed sin. The reality of the biblical worldview is that the world is broken by sin. Individuals are broken by sin. World tragedies, pandemics, floods, unimaginable hurt inflicted by people on other people, it all flows from this brokenness. I have spent uh, some time in ministry now and have had the pleasure of doing baptisms along the way, and I have some favorite baptism memories, one of which was we had built this brand new church in Colorado, and one of the uh, interesting technical aspects of the church was the baptistry was configured such that I didn't have to get in it with the person being baptized. I could stand behind it. The person would come in, I'd do the baptism thing, and then they'd leave out on the other side. The water, of course, was going to be heated for the person stepping into it. I didn't care because I wasn't going in the water. So one day, a really good friend of ours, was uh, uh, he, he, stepped, he stepped into the water, and I could see the look on his face. The look on his face was, oh my gosh, this is freezing cold. So he looks at me like, I'm going to bail him out of this somehow. And I just looked at him like, come on, buddy. And so he steps in gingerly. And you know this, right? If the water's cold, don't step into it gingerly because you just extend the amount of time you're going to be freezing to death. But he did this. He stepped in gingerly step by step by step by step by step until finally he's in the water, in the position for me to baptize him. And I reach in now and I go, oh, that water's kind of cool. Meantime, his face is turning blue, his lips have turned purple, and, and so we do the baptism thing. I cut short, I did the Reader's Digest condensed version of the baptism account, and I got him out of there as soon as I could. He walked out, literally icicles dripping from his fingers. That's how cold the water was. I tried not to laugh too much. That was a fun time. Another fun time was I got to baptize my mom. That was a real blessing, a memory I'll hold on to forever. And then one of my very first pastor, mentor kind of friends, his name was Gerald Griffin, back in San Antonio, Texas. He told me a story one day, a baptism story, of a church that didn't yet have its own building. So they were meeting in somebody's barn or something, and they came to a time when they were going to have some baptisms take place. And so one of the guys in the church said, you know what? I've got a swimming pool in my backyard. It's an above-ground pool. It's, it's really big. What we can do is we'll set up some curtains in the front, and the people can come up one side. They can come down, get in the water, get baptized. They can go up to the other side and get out and get dressed and all the rest of that stuff. It would be perfect. So they're in the process of doing baptisms. It was all guys being baptized that day. And so the first couple guys go in and go get baptized without incident. And then the third guy goes into the water without incident. He gets baptized. Now, the third guy was a bigger guy. He was a hefty boy. On his way out of the water, 
He grabbed a hold of what he thought was the, the handle to the stairs to get out. But instead, what he grabbed was the framework for the curtains that were shielding everybody from the, what was going on behind the scenes. He grabbed that uh, curtain rod thingy and he pulled on it and the whole thing came tumbling down. And unfortunately, one of the guys who had previously been baptized was in the process of putting his pants on behind the curtain when the whole thing came tumbling down. He was frozen in action in the midst of his nakedity while everybody else was just dying, laughing at that process. That's what happened in the fall. Adam and Eve grabbed a hold of the fruit from that tree and they pulled the whole thing down. The imprint of the Creator is still in every created person, but we've all now been marred by sin. We have inherited that sin nature, that sin proclivity. Not that we're as bad as we could be, most of us, but we're also not as good as we should be. And if you don't believe me about this, do the toddler test. Toddler disobedience, when they're, you know, 12 months, 13 months, 14 months, 15 months, 18 months, or whatever, or two years old, or whatever, and they, you've told them not to do something, not to go somewhere, not to grab something, or whatever, and they look you dead in the eye, and they do it anyway, that's not learned behavior. That's inside behavior coming out. Which reminds us that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the implication of this? What's this for? The implication of this is we are all desperately in need of the next word. You need it. I need it. Everyone you meet or will ever meet and have ever met needs it. What's the next word? It's the fourth word. The fourth word is redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. Pastor Laura read John chapter 3, verse 16, for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Followed on quickly by Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for you and for me and has made it possible that everyone, everyone who calls on his name would be saved. And here's the thing. If we don't get to this word, if we don't get here, we might as well quit talking about this. This word redemption is the focal point of this worldview. This, this word redemption is the, the key. It's the crux of the right prescription so that we can see well. Because without Jesus, there is only grief. With Jesus, there is the reality of eternal life, even when there is grief. But here's the thing. As crucial as this is, is embracing the work of Jesus on the cross to save us from our sins, this is not the end. We talk about heaven, and Tommy Walker's gang sang that song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And that is absolutely true. But heaven is a rest stop on the way to the next word, which we'll talk about in a second. Second, Now, here, think about this. Rest stop. 
as fancy as a rest stop might be. If you drive up Interstate 25 from Greeley, Colorado to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and you cross over the border to Wyoming, there is the fanciest rest stop I've ever seen in my life. Not just the stores and whatever, but a complete history of the state of Wyoming, complete with a little jail cell kind of thing where you can, you know, take touristy pictures or, you know, imprison your children or grandchildren if they've been bad and just leave them there and head on their way. It's a really, really, really wonderful rest stop. But who would want to live forever in a rest stop? Nobody. Now, heaven ain't no Wyoming rest stop. Heaven, by all description, is a wonderful place. Heaven is the place where Jesus turned to the thief on the cross next to him and said, Today, upon the thief's confession of faith in Jesus, Jesus said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's a great, wonderful place of worship and celebration of life forever with Christ. Pastor Laura and I once went to Cancun. Uh, we went to this uh, resort. And uh, man, talk about luxury living. Meals whenever you wanted them, wherever you wanted them. People attending to your every need. Beaches, sunshine, sand, warmth. Deliciousness in every possible way. Kind of heavenly. But we weren't going to live there forever. As beautiful as heaven is, it's not the last word in the Christian worldview. The last word, the fifth word, as marvelous as redemption is, the fifth word is consummation. And Pastor Lowell read to us 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, and Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Sometimes consummation is called restoration. But that would be six words, and that might be one word too many. So we're going to stick with consummation. Because this, folks, this understanding of heaven is not the end of the story. God is going to remake the heavens and the earth. And those who have identified with him will enjoy his presence for eternity. Now, I cannot remember who said this. I wish I could, so I could give them credit this morning. But I cannot remember who said this. But here it is. This person said, once we arrive in the presence of Jesus, we will wonder why we ever hesitated a second. A few years ago now, the group Mercy Me um, published the song, I Can Only Imagine. A couple years later, they made a film based on the, the uh, impetus for and the beginnings of that song. I can only imagine. The truth is, our brains can't even comprehend the depth of the reality of what it means to be with Jesus in that permanent place. That permanent place. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, said, I got caught up to this place. And I, I just don't, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, I just don't have words to describe it. So here's the implication of this, I think, this idea of consummation. What's it for? I don't think we should pack so much energy into things. I think we should pack more energy into people. 
I think we should let the people who are close to us know that we love them. And I think we should let them know we love them enough to encourage them to hang out with us in the most precious, ultimate destination. I think we should let them know that we want to skip down the sidewalks along the streets of gold with them in the new heaven and the new earth. Epiphany is coming on Wednesday. Traditionally, that's when the church has celebrated the arrival of the wise guys, the magi, the wise men, to, to, to see Jesus, the, the newborn, uh, the, about the two-year-old baby Jesus, to, 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 to worship him. Well, we need kind of an epiphany mindset, I think, to be like those wise men, to seek Jesus for the elements of our worldview. So before we take communion, before we celebrate the focal point of this worldview, that, 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 that idea of redemption, I want us to realize together this morning, this notion of worldview, these five words, this is both complicated and simple. But it's not simplistic. It's very straightforward. Worldview, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. You and I, we can hold on to that. And we should hold on to that as we move into 2021. Because I've got to tell you, as I've looked over the last year, and I've heard some people who were close to me and who are professing believers in Jesus say some of the stupidest, hurtful, most hateful things I've ever heard people say in my life. How can that be? It can happen when we are taking our worldview, not from the biblical perspective, but from the, that smorgasbord of our preferences or our political affiliations or all that other nonsense that's out there. Now, to get a prescription for eyeglasses, you have to go see the eye doctor. To get a prescription for the Christian worldview, you don't have to do that. What you do have to do is be a Berean. B-E-R-E-A-N. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 11, the Apostle Paul has showed up in this little town of Berea and he has ministered and spoken and preached and taught about Jesus. Here's what the book of Acts says about these people. Chapter 17, verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and here it is, Examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 2021. Get out those Bibles. Read them. Take your questions there so that we can see. There's a little video coming up. I said this is both complicated and simplistic. Complicated because it's complicated and simple. Complicated because you can spend a lifetime studying it. Simple because it's pretty straightforward. Simple enough so that even children can get it. Watch this video.